welcome to Conveyancing Matters with Lorraine and Stu. Join us for a chat about all things property. Hello, Stu. How are you? I'm not too bad, Lorraine. Yourself? Yeah, I'm all right. Thank you. So this is the first uh, Conveyancing Matters chat that we're going to have uh, following our explainer on the conveyancing process. So we've told lots of lovely people um, about the nuts and bolts of, of the process. But uh, we decided, didn't we, that we'd have a couple of chats about the sort of the conveyances inside track on the process, because we all know what should happen. But I think it might perhaps be helpful for people to understand um, from our point of view, you know, what really happens and what really causes sort of some of the delays and problems. So we, um, of course, started at the beginning, Stu, with the discussions about taking instructions and, uh, and and all of the ID and money laundering hoops. So what to, you know, you, you know, you run a big organisation, Stu, uh, you know, you're the head honcho. So um, what, uh, what, you know, what problems, what issues just around all that initial stuff do you find are some of the most common issues and the most common problems for your team? Well, I, the, the very first problem we often have is that, when you know we start a business relationship with a client and, and they sort of leave us to carry out their conveyancing, their life is in our hands, so to speak. You know, we're about to undertake a process which is going to take, you know, on average could take say 12 weeks. So we send the clients, whether it be a buyer or a seller, loads of forms to complete. Then all of a sudden, we don't hear anything. So we, you know, on I would say 75% plus, we have to send, we have to uh, chase the clients to get those forms completed. Now, if the client takes two weeks to get the form back, the problem we have is effectively we can't start work. So, you know, we need all that information back. And the, one of the biggest problems is, is the ID checking because, you know, I fully, fully appreciate that clients have already had to get their ID ready for the agent, you know, get their <clears throat> bank statements and passports and et cetera, ready for the mortgage company or their financial advisor. And then, of course, a month later, we go and ask for exactly the same thing. So I fully appreciate what a bore it is. However, um, you know, it's not just sort of, you know, our um, choice to get this document. It's not just our regulation. It's the law. You know, we have to we have to abide by it. So, you know, we have to before we start a business relationship, we have to carry out all that due diligence regarding the client's ID, their source of wealth and funds. So collating that information at the start at the earliest opportunity that's the very first problem that crops up do you find Stu? do you tend to um sort of have is most of your um communication with your clients presumably electronic do you have sort of you know electronic versions of all the forms i wonder if is it as hard to get clients to fill those forms and if they receive them electronically rather than by paper copies i because i go into a lot of firms i locum uh, and obviously talk to a lot of practitioners when i'm teaching and there i think there's this perception that if it's all online or it's all electronic then it all must be more marvelous than sticking something in an envelope um, but what's your experience of that? I don't think it makes any difference. I mean, we send out forms, <laughs> oh, whether, it be <laughs> whether it's electronically, hard copy, whatever the scenario may well be. But I think sometimes we're in this bubble, aren't we? And, you know, we're sending out forms that could be 20 pages long to complete, asking in-depth information on the property that they own, asking in-depth information on the, on the client circumstances. And, you know, in this day and age, time is so precious, isn't it? I know that, 
you know, within sort of other industries where I get sent forms to complete, oh, I sit on them for absolutely ages. Last thing I want to do is get home from work and then complete loads of forms. But it, it is the Law Society's protocol forms. They're standard forms that, you know, they're not ones that we've invented as lawyers. Um, you know, they have to be completed to sell the property. So completing the forms at the earliest stage is, is the first problem we come across as lawyers and getting that information into us quickly. I think one of the, you know, one of the associated problems, of course, I mean, with, with really with any form filling, but with the property information form in particular, um, of course, it often involves finding other information or other documents. So somebody suddenly thinking, oh, gosh, you know, I had that porch put up and I got a building reg certificate or, I, you know, where's my fencer certificate for my windows? So yep. that also is, is a problem for people. Um, and also, you know, we can't ignore the fact that, um, th you know, the sellers have to be told that they've got to take time on this and answer everything sort of properly and, and in depth, because, of course, the buyer's entitled to rely on it. And if the seller, you know, gives a misrepresentation, even innocently, because they couldn't be bothered to fill in the form properly, then whilst it would be very rare, you know, um, the, the buyer could sue them if they relied on that. So. Um, but do you think, Stu, I mean, are there any, you know, apart from, you know, Nirvana where we did away with everything, which, of course, I don't think is going to happen in your lifetime or mine. Um, what can we, how can we try to uh, sort of improve that? I mean, is there anything we can do? I mean, some firms try and fill in the forms a bit for the clients. Some firms try and get the clients in. But you've still got the fundamental problem that everything the client needs to get together isn't going to be there in one go unless they're super super organized but you know as well as i do that's one in 500 clients quite frankly so you know is there anything we can do to help them we, we i mean we in in the practice in the office we will sort of run a concierge service in with our new business department that, that will offer the client the ability to go through the forms but it's not that the clients don't know the answers to the forms um, as you say it's collating that information and I've been a massive advocate of a property law book for some time. Um, and I think, you know, in relation to that, it, it's simply keeping all your property documents in a central place so that when you do come to sell it, you know, everything's at hand. You know, a bit way, you know, a bit in the same way you might with a car keep all the repair documents, service documents, that kind of thing. It's the same with a house or, or, or a flat. And therein lies the problem. You, you mentioned, you know, that works could be carried out. So if it's electrical works, you may have certificates, boiler replacement certificates, um, loft insulation, solar panels. All this would be certificates. There could then be guarantees that run alongside those certificates. So it goes on and on and on. We're asking for utility bills. Um, you know, not to mention if the property is um, new, there could be new build warranties, planning permissions, building regulation consents. Like you say, fencer certificates, gas safety certificates. If the clients own a leasehold property, you've got a management company, you've got accounts, fire risk assessments. You could go on and on and on with the volume of papers that could relate to the property that you're looking to transact on. So I don't think it makes any difference. And I think the simplistic way of dealing with it is simply to have all this information collated before you get to the legal process. So collate the information when the property is yeah. on the market not you know not when times of the essence we've got a buyer in tow 
yeah exactly i mean that's certainly a lot of the narrative that's around at the moment isn't it uh you know in spite in spite of russell quirk's view that all conveyances are rubbish um i think it's all about communication and it's all about trying to uh, for sellers to try and get um, as you say the documents up front i've just thought of, a, of another explainer therefore maybe we should be doing an explainer for sellers on you know these are the documents you should be getting together but yeah. um i mean one of the bugbears i find um and a really inconsistent practice as well if you're acting on a purchase due um, is the checks around source of funds and source of wealth because clearly most people on a purchase are going to be putting in their own money uh, or they're going to be putting in cash whether or not it's their own or whether it's from the you know bank of mum and dad as it's been come, become known um, but of course, as you know, from the money laundering perspective, we should be checking that. But um, but the SRA did some research, actually, and it kind of, albeit it was a fairly small sample. I think it was about March 2018, I think. Maybe March 2019, don't remember. Look it up. Look it up, kids. Um, but basically, they sort of reached the conclusion that whilst most firms understood the importance of checking for um, uh, source of funds, i.e. where is the buyer client's money now, and we seem to have fallen into this um, this idea that, you know, if it's been in the client's bank account for three or six months, that's OK. Um, but what lots of firms aren't doing is source of wealth, i.e. where did the client get their money from? Right. Uh, and I think certainly on the courses I do, Stu, that really... Uh, vexes practitioners um, because they sort of say well you know how, how far back do we have to go what do we have to do and of course it's just there is no clear-cut answer to that it's very much um, what is a reasonable explanation based on what you the conveyancer know about this client so how challenging do you find that very difficult because you know you're 100% right and you say how far do you go back and for me it's all about profiling the client so there's no right or wrong answer in terms of what document you need to, uh, documents you need to collate but the barest minimum you need to be able to substantiate how the client has accumulated that money to buy that property in addition to that you want to see that money sitting in a bank account that you hold a bank statement for and where we sort of sometimes run into problems that link the start to the end also are, you know, we're looking at money sitting in that bank account. So we need to receive the money from that bank yeah. account so that everything complies with the checks that we've done. Um, where we have to carry out our ID checks and our due diligence on the client in terms of producing money, I would say now 50% of the time monies could be coming from you know, uh, family members, gifting, yep. deposits, that kind of thing. But that means we then need to carry out the same checks against the people gifting. So if mum and dad are putting in £50,000, I need to see mum and dad's ID. I need to see mum and dad, whether that be FaceTime, Zoom, uh, in, in person still sometimes happens. But um, you know, I need to see mum and dad. I need to check their ID. I need to substantiate how they got the money. Um, so... When we say, you know, we, we, we carry out this due diligence process, it's not limited to our client. And it can be ongoing because we, we've had circumstances before where, you know, it could be a, um, a brother and sister buying a property or a married couple buying a property. You could find that, you know, mum and dad have split up. Mum's putting in some money. Dad's putting in some money. Yeah. Both sets of parents are putting in monies. 
um, you could have four different trials um, of, of process, process that you need to go through. So it's not as easy as people think. I think um, there's a thought process out there that, you know, I've, I've seen the passport, great, that's it. You know, we have to see the passport or yeah. see the ID. We carry out electronic checks against that documentation. So if it's not sent to us in a proper manner, um, we may not be able to do that. Um, and then, of course, we might have to carry on and on and on till we can substantiate every penny that's going into that transaction. And, and where it becomes... Sorry, go on. Well, I was going to say, one of the problems also I found is... Um, is also, you know, if, if a conveyancer, if a lawyer is taking someone's ID, that there's that assumption that that lawyer is in some way acting for that person. And I think the, the lines can get really blurred if you're not yeah. careful about, no, we're not acting for mum and dad here. We've got, you know, that's a clear conflict of interest. Uh, and at no point, I think, should a conveyancing firm, you know, definitely not be giving mum and dad advice about that money. Um, uh, but but also they shouldn't be allowed to assume that that's what the firm is doing because one of the um, uh, you know one of the problems is that um, people still have this idea that it's a gift you know the clues in the title and lawyers get confused about this and then mum and dad sort of say oh you're here behind the scenes or can we have a declaration of trust or, um, well, we'll get the money back when he sells the property. Well, no, 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 stop, stop, stop. If it's a gift, yeah. you're not getting it back. That's kind That's of the point. Right. And people, and as I say, it's interesting because lawyers get that wrong. I, find, I see lawyers sort of whiffling on about deeds of declarations of trust to, um, you know, protect mum and dad's money. Well, if I give you a present on, you know, December the 25th, Stu, and to be fair, my, I may well do this year, um, well, the reality is I'm not going to be asking it back for asking you to give it me back in mid-January. Uh, you know, otherwise it's not really a gift. Most uh, of the time, yeah. stymies yeah. people. Yeah, definitely. I mean, most of the time, uh, if, if a client's obtaining a mortgage and there's money's coming from elsewhere, the bank will ask that client to give a declaration um, yeah. to state, you know, specifically that it's a gift and specifically that it's not repayable under any circumstances. Now, so, do you actually, Stu, as a matter of interest, sorry, I am just going to talk across to you. Um, that must be interesting for people to listen to. Oh, I'm used is, to it. Carry on. <laughs> yeah, this is the one that, well, Lorraine just talked all over Stu. But what interests me there is um, if the letter confirming the gift has been sent um, by a mortgage broker, so from mum and dad to confirm to lender that it's a gift, and the mortgage broker has sent that letter to the lender. But as is almost invariably the case, Stu, the lender nowhere in the mortgage offer acknowledges that they're aware that that 50K in your example is coming from mum and dad. Do you find it really irritating that you then have to go through the process again and ask mum and dad for that letter again for you to send to the lender again because um, otherwise you're not complying with your duties to the lender. Yeah, 100%. It's a complete pain in the rear. You know, the clients have already gone through that process, given that information. Uh, on occasions, declarations have, have been signed to this effect. And then we walk in not knowing potentially that that could have happened. Uh, and in any event, even if it has, we need to give that information to the bank. When the bank issue a mortgage offer to us, 
Now, we are instructed to act on behalf of the bank. They're our instructions, and we have to report any and yeah. all issues to the bank, and that includes where the money is coming from. So despite what the client may have done with the bank, despite what the broker may have obtained, we still, in addition, have to give that separate representation to the bank to authenticate where the money has come from. I'm a bit more cautious about that, Stu, than I used to be, because I have... Um... What I tend to do now, and it's, it's frankly, it's a real, as you say, pain in the absolute doodah, because um, I will, when my clients say where the money has come from, and as you say, it might be perhaps the more sort of complex family arrangement or whatever, I will usually sort of repeat that back to the client and say, is this correct? I'm now declaring this the lender. And I've certainly had a situation where, thankfully, the client had said, yes, Lorraine, that's right. So they confirmed that my understanding was correct. I then wrote to the lender and said, this is where the client says the money's come from. And the lender actually withdrew the mortgage offer completely because that was a different, quite a different declaration to that which the mortgage broker had made on application. Um, and the mortgage broker, I couldn't comment specifically as to what the mortgage broker was trying to do. Um, Maybe they'd misunderstood the situation, but certainly, uh, you know, the lender had not been told everything that they should have been told. So um, there's this temptation, I think, isn't there, to think, oh, well, the lender's been told. But of course, the really easy way around that for us, and quite why the lenders can't pick this up, maybe when we're big enough, Stu, we'll get a lender to come on and tell us. Why can't the lender just acknowledge in the offer that they are aware that a gift of X pounds is coming from A and B, and therefore, and prompt us to let them know if, if we know something different. Well, that's what's really annoying, isn't it? You know, yes. the lender would have gone through such due diligence on the credit check side of, of, of a mortgage application that they already know a substantial amount of information about the client's funds, where it's coming from, so on and so forth. They know this information already. You, you don't get a mortgage without declaring this. So it is a pain, like you say, in the doodah, and then have to reconfirm everything again. Yeah. And of course, we have to get consent from the clients, give that information to the bank, purely because if it causes an adverse reaction, like you say, the client, you know, the lender could pull their offer. You know, it's a nightmare. It's, it's one of those where, unfortunately, not everyone's singing from the, the same hymn sheet. Well, and I think this, I've, I've, I've noticed a theme, to already with, with our chats. And, and this, I think, comes back. It's going to come back. Whether the lenders would ever admit it is a different matter. I suspect they wouldn't. But I think it just comes back to the question of liability and where, you know, the hat is going to be hung if something goes wrong. And I suppose the less that the lenders you know, acknowledging their offers, the more they can then uh, perhaps, you know, impose that obligation on the properly insured conveyances if something were to go wrong. But, um, but I think you're absolutely right, because the point is, of course, that the lender will actually in reality know far more about the, the detailed um, uh, state of the client's finances than you or I ever will. I mean, you know, there was the well, there was the MMR a few years ago, wasn't there? The Mortgage Market Review. I mean, I remember I did a webinar on it. You know, it wasn't a wasn't a jab that uh, loads of people didn't want their kids to have. It was, um, you know, it was the Mortgage Market Review, and and that was when the lenders had to sort of toughen up their acts and and um, you know not accept the sort of self declared income situations and look really carefully at bank statements. I don't do that. I'm, you know, I'm not a bank. You know, I'm not an accountant. Uh, I can do many things, but um, 
but that you know those aren't one of them yeah, there's, there's two, two further points to pick up on. It, it's really difficult for us when we make such a point in our terms and conditions of telling a client that you know, we, we don't um, have any part of the mortgage process. You, know, you need to speak to your bank about that. You need to speak to your financial advisor about that. Blah, 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 blah. But, and then we have to get all this information and give it to the bank. You know, to the client, I, that, that must look ridiculous. It must look, yeah. like, you know, must look like we're being hypocritical. Um, so I, I, I really, you know, sometimes these things do... Uh, do drive you mad um, and in addition you know going back to when we talk about source of funds and monies what's very difficult is to substantiate how somebody's got money whereby they they may have saved it up over years and years and years and years yeah um you know so when people say oh you know how many bank statements do i need do i need six months worth do i need a month's worth what 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 is the scenario you know when we talk about profiling a client it's hard to give an exact definition as to what that is yeah. But either way, we must have uh, zero, you know, reason to suspect there's a problem. Uh, and if that means we need to obtain six months worth of bank statements, you know, despite the fact the client's already dug those out, already given them to the broker, already sent it on, may have now deleted it or shredded it or whatever, we may have to ask for exactly the same information yeah. again. And bear in mind, this is right at the very start. This is before we've even started looking at yeah. the property they're buying. Well, that and that's um, and that's the real problem, isn't it? I mean, I had um, uh, a woman who, um, well, I had, we had one client actually, and what we tended to do was if somebody rang in for a, for an estimate for fees, um, and I certainly started to put this in my confirmatory email. Um, you know, if you know if you cannot prove to us where the money has come from then we're not going to be able to act for you and manage the expectation from the get-go. And one lady thought that um, she was bringing, I don't know, um, about 100 grand from China, I think. Um, and we said, well, we're going to need to know where the money's come from. And all she kept saying was, well, you know, the money's been in an English bank account for three months. That's enough, isn't yeah. it? And we didn't get beyond that first conversation. And one lady we had, she said, um, um, uh, well, I sold an asset in 2008, is your point about how long have they had the money. Um, and I'm afraid, you know, we just took a really risk-averse attitude to that. And perhaps if we'd known her or she wasn't a new client, um, but we just took a quite a risk-averse attitude and said, well, pff, you know, terribly sorry, but if you've got absolutely nothing and you can't dredge up anything to actually kind of give us some indication as to where you got the money, um, not prepared to act now that is an individual risk assessment on behalf of a particular firm every firm takes a different attitude to risk but um but but so some perfectly probably legitimate transactions for some firms don't get beyond the get-go uh because yeah of that. no you're right and, and it's sometimes you have to be very intrusive into yeah. you know not just your client but but their relative circumstances asking them where the money's come from lots of clients take offense to that yeah. And not everybody's aware of the, the money laundering regulations that affect us. Um, so it, it's a real difficult one to get over. But um, we have, you know, we have to be conscious of the risk, conscious of our, our obligations, you know, under the regulations. And, and unfortunately, you know, we don't want to have to do this. We don't want to have to spend all this extra time doing this. But to go through to buy the property, we have to we have to do it. Yeah, absolutely. And um, well, I think you've sort of hit the nail on the head a minute ago, Stu, when you said, well, we haven't even, you know, we've not even got past first base, we've not done any work yet. And actually, 
um, for many, many years now, I've taught uh, two sort of one day courses, one an introduction for conveyance for paralegals and one a similar course, but for, for qualified colleagues who are moving into conveyancing. Um, and over the years, the probably a good, a good third of the day is actually spent on all of this stuff all of this risky stuff before we've done any conveyancing and I'll I'll be drifting up to lunchtime Stu on those courses and I will find and I'll say to the delegates and finally we're going to talk about some conveyancing but that's probably as good a place as anywhere Stu to to draw this particular conveyancing matter to a close and um and I suspect we might have a little rant about a different aspect of the conveyancing process in uh, in part two of our chat no problem <laughs>